Heights, well, welcome. It's good to see all of you guys. Welcome to Coastline. Happy President's Day weekend. I actually do have a broom ball update from the students. The girls and the boys both lost yesterday, but they're currently playing right now in a playoff game. So Lord, in your great sovereignty, would you bless these teams and these youths and help them to destroy the dreams of other youth that you also love? We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, amen. Good morning. <laughs> well, really today, um, in some capacity, every pastor in America is addressing, uh, in some context, the revival that's happening at Asbury University. And if, if sure, sure, watch that. If, if you aren't really familiar with what I'm talking about, so on February 8th, which is, I think, 10 days ago now, uh, chapel happened at Asbury University, which is a Christian university, and it was, by all accounts, an unremarkable chapel. But at the end of the chapel time, students remained, and worship just continued on and on into the night, and so now we're here 10 days later, and there continues to be worship happening there in the chapel. Now, this is the sort of thing that the church refers to as a revival. And a revival is the moment when God's presence suddenly becomes near to us in a way that is different than our kind of usual experience of it. And usually the outflowing kind of revival, or perhaps we might even say the kindling of revival, is both worship and repentance. And as worship and repentance in God's presence comes near, there becomes this passion and this vitality and this pursuit and this nearness of God that becomes uh, something that is so far beyond our normal experience that people pay attention to it. Now, the church has a long history, and America has a long history of revivals, but there probably has not been one, at least that I'm aware of, that has taken place in the social media age. And so we're able to get a view into it as it's happening in real time, and it's incredibly exciting to watch the things that God's doing there at this university. Um, and it's spreading, I think, to other universities now in the area, and it's something that we desperately need, I think, as a country. So when it began, Melinda began saying, we need to go. We need to get on a flight. We need to go see, go to Kentucky and see what's happening there. And I would say that's, we're probably not going to go. Melinda's not really taking no for an answer, but we're probably not going to go, largely because it's Kentucky. It's a long way away. And even though we desire to go, we are most likely not to go at least as of 12.01 on this Sunday. Uh, but Melinda has a long afternoon in front of her, and she just might sway us. <laughs> but as we began to think and talk about it, Melinda and I, and as we listened to other people speak about it, we thought rather than, and we've been encouraged in this way as well, rather than traveling to Kentucky, the prayer should be that that same spirit of revival would happen here amongst us. That it would happen here. That we don't need to travel as if we're going to spiritual Jesus Disneyland, but we would pray that that same spirit who's always with us and who wants to revive and wants to stir what actually happened here in our midst. And this is why, specifically, I'm really excited about Ash Wednesday for us this Wednesday. Now, if you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service, good news, neither have I. <laughs> never been, never seen one. Uh, a lot of times when we hear Ash Wednesday, we think Catholic, a sort of Catholic service. 
it's not just a Catholic sort of service. Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans. In fact, most churches practice Ash Wednesday unless you're at a megachurch, and then generally it doesn't because it's just a little bit far out there. The entire day, though, is it revolves around, the entire service is about repentance and about the confession of your sins. That's what the symbolic kind of representation of the ashes is, of mourning and of lament and of being reminded of our own death and the reality of Christ, and is getting yourself ready for Lent to come. And so as I was considering this whole thing happening in Asbury, I thought, boy, our Ash Wednesday service really has a chance to become something special, something unique, as we get to step into the place where revival can kind of happen, the sort of things that kindle revival and see God come near to us. So I really want to encourage you to come on Wednesday. I think it's going to be great. It's going to be new. It's going to be a little bit outside the box and a little bit outside of our comfort zone, but I think that's a good place for us to be in terms of God's presence. Now let's talk about the sermon. So usually I begin my sermons with some silly story or another, ex- another time when I was an idiot and made a terrible mistake. And I have a lot of stories like that. But here's the deal. I need to finish the book of Esther today, and I also need to solve the problem of evil in the same sermon. So I've got 35 minutes to do what theologians and scholars have spent just thousands of pages doing. And so... We're going to just kind of jump into it today, if that's okay with you. What's unique about the sermon, and especially as you move into areas of God's sovereignty, his providence, his divine will, and our free will, what I can tell you that I know for certain is that I'm going to be wrong about something today. I just don't know what it is. There is no way I'm going to get this exactly right because brilliant theologians fall on all different sides of this and the scripture seems to affirm two different things at the same time. That God has this sovereign will that is above all things that cannot be stopped and you have a free will as well that you are fully accountable to God for. And somehow God's sovereign will and our free will exist side by side without contradicting. And how that happens is something that none of us actually know this side of heaven other than to affirm both. So today we're going to look at Esther chapter 8. We're going to read about the story of Purim. We're going to kind of get to see how we celebrate it this week if you're in a community group. And ask the bigger questions about the nature of good and evil in this world and how a truly sovereign God can allow things to happen that happened in the book of Esther. So before we do anything else, let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, Lord, I just come very humbly before you, asking that you would speak through me, that God, you would guard my words from error as much as I can, that, God, you'd help me to speak with precision to help people know exactly who you are. And, God, would you also help me to also hold mystery, the places where we don't have all of the clarity we want to, and to be able to present certainty where it's clear, but also mystery where Scripture points to that too. But, Lord, would you give us a hunger for you, the sort of hunger that is happening at Asbury, the sort of hunger that kind of Coastline was launched with, Lord, would you give us a desire to connect and know and understand you? And in all of the questions, would you help us to ask? And Lord, would you speak? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Esther. We're going to be in chapter 9, actually. Esther chapter 9, verse 20. I'm going to read to us from Esther 9, 20 to 28. 
Mordecai, he recorded all of these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe these days as days of feasting and joy and giving a presence of food to one another and the gifts to the poor. And so the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadetha, there we go, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme of Haman had devised against the Jews should come back into his own head, onto his own head and that he and his son should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days shall be called Purim for the word pur, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every time of year in the way prescribed and the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out amongst their descendants. <laughs> so... In these passages, we get the commemoration of this holiday of Purim. It's the day of deliverance. Now, this last week, true Purim is coming up uh, the following week from now. I think it's March 6th and 7th this year. And so we had Purim dinners this past week. And as you can see from the text, it is two days of feasting and of celebrating in Israel for what God has done. Now, Purim has two kind of components to it. In one way, it is a childlike celebration. When Purim happens, they read the story of Esther. When they mention the name Haman, whistles and horns are blown. And when the name Mordecai is mentioned, there is cheering and joy. It's a time of giving of, to charity, and it's a time of kind of these special sorts of desserts. It's a fun, kid-like vaudeville holiday. At the same time, Purim in different parts of Israel, especially the more secular parts, is a rowdy sort of event. It is a lot more like Mardi Gras than anything else, where people are encouraged to drink until they are done drinking in the same way that Xerxes did uh, at the, in the first part of Esther chapter 1. And so it is a very rowdy sort of festival. And these two things kind of live together in the Jewish calendar as being the day when they remember and celebrate all that God has done. Specifically, verse 22 tells them what they're supposed to do. To remember the day when they received rest from their enemies, number one. Also, the day when their sorrow was turned into joy. And three, when their mourning was turned into celebration. So this holiday, they're told to commemorate it without fail, to never stop, and that every Jew in every province for all time must celebrate Purim. Why? Why is it so important that they remember this holiday and celebrate it and never stop celebrating it? Part of it comes back to the fact that the spirit of Purim and the victory that they experienced and the peace that they had over their enemies and the fact that they had experienced from sorrow to joy, that that whole season 
it wasn't going to last forever. That sorrow would come back again. That new enemies would rise up against them. That the, morning, the moments of happiness would slowly dwindle into monotony and kind of normal day after day living. That somehow they wouldn't always be able to stay in the spirit of Purim. And so the hope was that they would always need to come back and commemorate Purim, not simply because it was a good time back then, not because God worked at one time in the past, but to remind themselves that in the moments when they are most troubled, when they are full of the most sorrow, when it seems like the enemies are going to destroy them again, that they would remember the things of Purim and it would give them comfort and peace in the present and it would give them an incredible hope again for the future. You see, it wasn't just about what God did in the past. It was about bringing that same peace and that same truth into their presence so they could experience it again in their own new context and remember that they were never, ever, ever forgotten by God. This seems to be written after the time of Xerxes and after the time of Mordecai and after the time of Esther. They almost seem to be explaining, almost, about what Purim is, again, for a new generation and why it matters. And this is important because Purim could just become another holiday. It could be just sort of the sort of holiday that you easily pass by. It could be the sort of thing where you could go into Purim and actually be somber, or you could forget about the meaning. But their hope is, is that if they could remember the story, it could bring them greater life and joy in the present. I think there's an opportunity for us to do something similar in our lives with the things that God has done. Uh, a lot of you know Carrie George, a good friend. Kevin George, her son, is a dear friend of mine. And Kevin has gone through uh, two kidney transplants, I think. Three kidney transplants? He's had all the kidneys. You probably have given a kidney to Kevin and didn't even know it. That's how many kidneys he's had. But what she was doing yesterday was that she was posting on the date of the first transplant and remembering what it was like and reminding herself about how God had moved and how dark those times were as a way of rebuilding and kindling her faith and encouraging herself for whatever might happen today and whatever it is to come tomorrow. That is the spirit of Purim lived out today. See, I don't know if you and I need to do a Purim dinner every year. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll decide that we are a Purim church, but the spirit of Purim can live on in your life because I know there's a place in your life where God has moved in ways that shocked you, when it seemed like things would never work out, where it seemed that doom was right around the corner, and somehow God intervened, stepped in, delivered you in a way that you never, ever expected. And you know what you need to do? You need to remember that date. Not just the thing that happened. You should remember that date. And every time that date comes around, you should celebrate again the things that God did in the past, not just as a way of honoring what God did in the past, but as a way of bringing that joy back into the present and grounding yourself again in who God is and what he can do and how deep his love is so that you can move on into the future with a great sense of hope and peace. That's the spirit of Purim lived out for us in a modern era as a way of continuing to show thanks for what God has done. We should all be celebrating something. There is something here in the story that's fascinating, though, and it's the very name of it, Purim. If you have your Bibles, again, focus on 926. Therefore, these days, this two-day festival, these two days were called Purim for the word pur. 
because of everything they had written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The word per is Akkadian. It is the word for lot or it's the word for dice. In Esther 3.7, we're told that when Haman decided that he was going to have the Jews killed, that this is the actual verse, in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the per, that is the lot, dice, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. So what Haman does is he rolls the dice to see what date he should have the Jews executed upon. Now, this sort of way of doing things is ancient, and it's actually kind of biblical. We know that when Joshua divided the promised land, he did so by casting dice, by rolling lots, by casting the purr. This was how he broke up and decided who should go where. When the disciples were replacing Judas, they did so by rolling dice, by casting the purr. We know that the high priest of Israel had two dice inside of his breastplate, which were called the umen and the thumen, which were the ways that they rolled and determined what God should have them do. Friends, if you ever want to be grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives, know that there was an era where God was so distant that the only way you could know what he want was by rolling the dice to find out. So what he does here is something that has this sort of background in it. But what we're told, and this comes out of Esther 9.24, that when Haman cast the lots, he did so for their ruin and their destruction. He doesn't cast the lots trying to figure out, should I have the Jews killed? He rolls the purr to see when he should have them be killed. He did so to terrify them, and to plan for their ruin, and more specifically, to taunt them. That they would die by the roll of a dice. That they were completely powerless to stop what was going to happen to them. And their death would be something completely meaningless, decided by the random roll of the purr. So this is interesting. Why would the Jews name their holiday after the item that was the means to their destruction? Why would they choose the purr as something of celebrating their holiday of how God delivered, to, delivered them? It would be as strange if we called July 4th, instead of Independence Day, if we called it Bayonet Day, because bayonets were the means by which the Redcoats killed us. Or it might be as strange as saying September 11th should be known as Airplane Day. Look, that's a crass and a terrible illustration. But we almost need it to help us imagine why would you name Parim after Pur? Why would you name it after the thing that was the means of your enemy? Why let them define it? Why allow them to have the name? Why remember it for that reason? Why not call it Yahweh Day or Mordecai Day? Why call it after the Pur? The Jews named the holiday Parim to make a point. Really, they named it Purim to reclaim a taunt. What were they saying? They were saying that in this life, there is no such thing as blind chance. That this holiday is proof that there is a sovereign God. That this holiday is proof that if you follow Yahweh, then that you live underneath his sovereign protection care, and control. That ultimately Yahweh is in charge of not only everything, but even 
what happens when you roll the dice. Proverbs 16.33 actually has a verse about this. It says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That word the Lord there is again the name Yahweh. So Yahweh is behind even the rolling of the dice that Haman did. It's a way of saying that the random events in our life are not truly random at all. They're carefully placed tiny moments that kind of determine the course of your life and of history. And that's just how we experience life, right? Our life is experienced not simply by the big, major life decisions that we go through, but by the seemingly small and insignificant ones that we never saw coming. Some of you met your spouses through the most random sets of chances. Some of you got a career by being simply at the right place at the right time by the right relationship that opened the right door. And sometimes you never saw that coming. Some of you are going to college not because it was your first or second or third choice, but it was your fourth or fifth. It didn't feel like even a big decision at the time, and yet our lives pivot both on big and also on small decisions that we never see coming. And God takes the big and the small, and he weaves them all together to direct and give shape to our lives and to direct the entire course of human history. Because of this, because Purim gave the Jews a sense that God was always with them, that he would never forget them, that he would always deliver them from their enemies, that there was no such thing as chance, that he would work all things for good. Since the Jews came to deeply believe this from Purim, the book of Esther became incredibly important in the death camps of the Holocaust. It was there that the book of Esther was read again and again and again, and it was celebrated Because they knew that in the face of just incredible evil and seeming certain doom and an unstoppable enemy in Hitler, that God had moved through similar circumstances in the past. And that although there are thousands dying every day, it gave them hope that God is not done with us, even though things are incredibly dark. They reminded themselves that God had saved in the past and he would save them again. And God did save them. Hitler was destroyed. Israel was formed out of it to give them a place where they could have rest from their enemies. But over the course of time, Jewish theologians have started to read Esther against the Holocaust instead of with it. Meaning that if God is sovereign... If he controls all things, then why allow the Holocaust really at all? In the death camps, one-third of the entire Jewish people in the world were executed. Six million Jews. If six million Jews die, how could we ever claim that any part of that was a victory, or that it was good, or that it was a part of God's plan? There is a writer, a professor of religion named Karen Armstrong. She wrote a book called A History of God. And she has this quote, that if God is omnipotent, he could have stopped the Holocaust. And if he was unable to stop the Holocaust, then he's impotent and he's useless. And if he chose not to, then he is a monster. Can we just pause for a moment and consider that quote and acknowledge that it's fair, that it's real, 
that it's big. It is an intellectually solid question. It is reasonable for us to ask it. And it is also reasonable for us to doubt our faith because of the implications of it. You might have already felt that way at some place in the book of Esther. If God was sovereign to stop the massacre, why does he not stop the collection of virgin girls into the harem? Why choose that place to stop evil? Why not stop it way before? If God is sovereign, why not stop the Jews from falling into the clutches of Xerxes at all? If God really is sovereign, then why does Esther have to be a story of reversals? Why does evil ever have to win in the first place? Why can't it just be victory from the beginning? Why does evil have to ever have its day and for reversal to happen and for good to come out of it? Why not simply just prevent it all? I'm willing to bet that you've experienced this at some place in your own life. About why did God move in this place in my life and not move in that place? When I was a high school pastor, I had twin girls come through the ministry. One of them developed brain cancer twice and died before she was able to complete high school. The other one lived a healthy, normal life without incident without disease. That just feels like blind chance. That just feels incredibly random and cruel. I had two friends diagnosed with breast cancer within the same year. One of them lived, one of them died. Why? Why does one make it and why does one not? Why does one move fairly easily and simply? And why does one simply go through round after round after round of chemo and is unable to pull through? Why does someone's abusive husband haunt them throughout their entire life, always there as this menacing threat? And why does a good husband pass away far too soon? Why do some people get more suffering than they can handle? And why do some people get more blessing than they could ever use or spend or testify about? See, if we're going to praise God for the miraculous, can't we also shake our fist at him when we get less than that? If he can do miracles, then why should we not shake our fists when we don't receive them and experience them? It feels like life is just a roll of the dice that is random and that it has no meaning or larger narrative to it. How do we make sense of God's sovereign power in light of the incredible human suffering that we experience? Let's go into the text. Let's try to ask the question. How does the Bible describe God's sovereignty? Simply put, it describes God's sovereignty in this way, that God has the wisdom, and he has the authority and the power. So he has the wisdom, authority, and power to do whatever he wills and chooses with his creation. That with God, there is no limitation. There is nothing that he cannot do. If God desires to part seas, or raise the dead, or stop the sun, he can, and it is not hard. He does not strain. His hand does not shake. He does not have to will himself up. He is not exhausted at the end of it. For God, these things happen out of the mightiness of his nature and his sovereignty. And providence, when we talk about providence, we talk about that God has created the world and has started the world, and he remains actively involved in the world. Some people have this way of thinking that God creates the world and he has spun it. 
into existence. He has placed you and I in it, but now he stands at a distance watching, and he is largely uninvolved with what happens in the day-to-day here of your and my life. This is oftentimes called deism. God exists, God is real, but he's distant and uninvolved. What we see has been created by him, but the reason why there's so much brokenness is because he stands at a distance now, uninvolved with it. Although that is compelling, and it's interesting, it's actually not biblical really at all. Uh, Isaiah 14, 24 to 27, it says this, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely, as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? That God is active, and he is involved, and he is powerful, and nothing can stop him. Now, in relation to mankind... He also speaks about his sovereignty. He speaks about how he is over and above all of human history. This is out of Acts 17, 26. From one man, God has made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. So God has decided that you would live now, here, at this exact time in this nation with these boundaries that he has determined where you fit in the entire story and he has done this for each and every one of us. And he not only has shaped human history, he's shaped you specifically in history. This is out of Psalm 139, 13 to 14. For you've created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. And in regards to your entire life story, God knows it and sees it as well. Psalm 139:16. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all of the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What it means is that nothing about you is accidental. That knows your eyes, the gifts that you have, the passions that exist within you, you being a part of that family at this place, at that high school, in this job, none of it is accidental. God is this author who is writing this story, and you are a key part in it, and he's written, into, written you into his story at this exact place and time. Now, this might give us some sort of comfort to know that God is this involved, that God loves us this much, and that God knows us this well. But it also raises some interesting questions. Is all of this just determined? Is our free will just an illusion? Are we living out some pre-programmed set of uh, actions and beliefs and behaviors that God determined from before time what we should do? Do we have agency or are we simply doing as we're programmed? Let me ask you a question. Do you feel free? I mean, just think about it. Do you feel free right now? You have a number of options in front of you right now. You can sit and listen. You can get up and leave. You can get out your phone and play two dots. You have lots of options about how to spend your time, and you can decide right now to change them, can't you? You have that ability to choose. And so we feel free, and that freedom is not an illusion. You truly are free. Because part of what God is doing is that he's not just writing a story, he's writing a love story. 
And for us to be a part of God's love story, that means that you have to have the free will to love him back. Or else it's actually not love at all. Bonnie Raitt sings that song, I Can't Make You Love Me If You Don't. It's a good song. It's a good song. That's true not only for Bonnie Raitt and whoever she's singing about, but it's true of any one of us. None of us can make anyone love us unless they choose to. For us to compel someone to love us is something altogether different. It's altogether awful. It's, an ab- it's a sort of violence that we would commit against one another. It is far worse that in order for us to truly love God as he loves us, we have to be able to choose to love him. As scripture affirms time and time again, you and I actually have the ability to choose. In Eden, Adam and Eve are given a tree so that they can always choose to follow God or not, to live according to his ways and his will, or to live according to their own. This same sort of choice was given to Israel after they came out of the Exodus when they're in the wilderness. This is out of Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. This is God speaking. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God and listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there to this people, he gives them the choice to follow him or not. And Jesus, he affirms the choice that we have as well. This is out of John 7, 16 to 17. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me, and anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. We get to make our own choices. God empowers us with the free will to do so, and he will hold us accountable at the end of all times for the choices that we've made, in particular in response to his son. So, How can God have a sovereign will and also not somehow to trample over my free will? It seems like it's a mystery in terms of how that happens. Since man has to have a free will, it means that man can also freely choose to disobey God. A great example of this in the scriptures uh, comes from the story of the flood. God gives mankind the ability to choose to follow him. He creates mankind in his image so that there will be reflections of him. It's that when people see mankind act, they will have a picture about who God the creator is. We are the image of God. This is why God hates idols. It's because he already has someone that's created in the image of him. It's us. It's not supposed to be stone or these other kinds of statues. And yet when God creates mankind with this kind of freedom, before the flood, man makes so many choices that go against who God is and what we're meant to be that says that God regrets making us. He regrets it. And to stop what's about to happen and to stop his image of being ruined by us, he wipes all of creation clean and starts over again. There's a principle in this difficult story, and it's this, that we can violate God's will, but we can do nothing to stop his plan. His plan is going forward. There's a few theologians who give us some illustrations to understand this. Uh, Tozer, when he talks about, he describes a ship. For the sake of this illustration, we'll call it a four-night Ensenada cruise on Carnival Cruise Lines. 
that there on the ship, you and I can choose to play shuffleboard, we can go to the buffet, we can read a book in the sun, but the ship is going someplace and there's nothing that we can do to stop it. So in this life, we have these places of free will, but ultimately there's a place where God is driving human history and driving us someplace and we cannot stop it. Uh, a theologian named Strong uses the fishbowl analogy, where he says that our free will is like a fish in a bowl, that we can move around in the bowl with a lot of freedom, but there's times we're going to run into a glass wall that we cannot pass through, that we have a realm of influence of free will, but there have become places where God simply will not allow us to go further any longer and will stop us from going there. Sometimes in life, that fishbowl feels very small, and sometimes that fishbowl might be like Shamu's sort of, uh, sort of fishbowl there at SeaWorld. Shamu was a whale. He's probably dead now. Think of your favorite killer whale at SeaWorld that is currently slowly dying due to their care. <laughs> this is not in my notes. Uh, and imagine that sometimes the wheel is large and sometimes it's incredibly small. The way I've explained it in the past is that we experience free will like a road trip to New York. We can go any number of ways to get to New York, some easy, some hard, some long, some short, but in the end, if you were gonna get to New York, you gotta head east. And in God's will, sometimes he allows us any number of choices, but there's some choices that we simply cannot get away from and that we simply must make. And where we don't understand that, we have to trust God's sovereignty in all of it. Now, all of these sorts of answers about where God is and how this world works and how he has sovereignty and how does evil exist, part of it is satisfying, but part of it's not, because right now I'm speaking right to your head. But oftentimes, the biggest issue with these questions, it's not happening in our heads, it's happening in our hearts. Because in our hearts, there's a place of pain where we feel betrayal by God, or we feel abandoned or forgotten by God. And so speaking to my head doesn't do anything to help that in the depths of me, there is deep pain as I look at a world where earthquakes hit Turkey, where school shootings and church shootings and concert shootings and workplace shootings happen. They don't help us when we feel abandoned by those that we love. What we really want is for God to intervene in those moments of pain and stop it with his sovereignty. But my real question is, do you really actually want that? Because oftentimes, the source of evil in this world, it's not this sort of outside evil. It's coming directly from inside of me. That inside of me, there is a sinful heart that is always bent towards sin. And so what I would be asking God to do, that if I want him to come and right every sort of wrong, then I'm going to ask for him to come and censor me and stop me. We've got a golf cart at my family house in Catalina. It has a regulator on it, which keeps it from driving over 20 miles an hour, which is probably like 10 miles an hour. It's really slow. You could try to get that thing going really fast, but it's going to hit that point, and it's just going to back it down until it can only go 20. What if that's how God chose to handle us? What if every moment when you were on the verge of gluttony, a gigantic hand came out of the sky and sealed your mouth so you couldn't eat? What if every moment when you were about to exhibit greed and purchase something that somehow your credit card and your bank accounts just seized so you could not do it? What if every moment when you're about to have a lustful thought, suddenly you went blind for one hour so you could not actually 
do it? What if every moment when you were about to raise your voice, you actually lost your voice by the power of God? Would you love a God who constantly intervened in your free will and limited you in that way, or would you hate him? See, I think I would hate him. I think I would resent him. That is not what I would actually want. And God knows that, and so he chose another way. His way was to send his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live in this world in human flesh and to show us exactly who God is in his goodness and in his holiness and his character and in his love. So if we ever need to know who he is, we can look at who Jesus is and see him there. And then Jesus lived and died in our place, carrying with him the sin of the world on top of himself and bearing it down into the grave and rising without it, leaving it dead behind him. <laughs> that was very reverent sounding there on the microphone. <laughs> that he left it there in the grave. And then he rose. And he rose and invited us to come and believe in him. And when we believe in him, he places his spirit inside of us, which will then help us to know and understand and hear and live with him. And it will take away the power of sin in our lives. It will help us to live like him. And we would know that all the trouble and all the pain we experience in this world, it is only momentary. If you want God to come in and stop all pain and suffering in this world, the good news is that he's going to do that one day. It's just not today. And if you long for that, rather than disbelieving in God, Scripture says, rather pray a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and restore and renew all things, because he knows that it's broken. And he knows that you have needs. And yet he has chosen to come and live alongside your free will and to call you to come, follow, and worship him. And that choice is yours. And it's real. And not only do we make it every day, there's times we get a chance to make it once and for all for allegiance and direct our lives to him. So let me ask you just a few questions to close. First of all, where... Has God reversed your pain into goodness and blessing? And how do you need to commemorate that to get you through whatever's coming next? The second question, where in your life are you experiencing pain that you haven't experienced redemption yet, where you've seen nothing good come from the pain, the loss, and the grief that you suffered? What remains still broken? We need to pray that God would turn those places of mourning into dancing. Where in your life do you need to invite the Spirit in to come and strengthen you for the journey and the difficult places that you are walking in? And maybe, just maybe, some of you need today need to make a place, a decision, a place of allegiance to Jesus Christ, to decide that this world is too hard to do on your own, and to come to him and worship him for the good, loving God that he is. Let me pray. Lord, I know that in so many ways we just scratched the surface of this, Lord, that this could be another two hours. But God, would you build our faith in you? Lord, for those who are in the midst of immediate pain where this feels very relevant, who are desperate for you to intervene, God, we know that you can, and we know that you sometimes do, and we ask that you would. And Lord, in those places that you're going to delay on, Lord, we ask that your spirit would be there with us, and know that redemption is still coming. All things will be made new. You will work all things for good. 
And Lord, for the searchers and the seekers and the doubters out there in the room who are somehow here with a lot of reservations, God, would you help them to know that you love them right now as they are. And you invite them to come to a place of faith and of worship of you. And God, would you help them to turn their lives over to you and experience the goodness and blessing that comes from being known by your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.